Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-377. I will be Chris, your host. Thank you for joining me. I wrote this particular piece the day after the U.S. Thanksgiving. And the weather was finally starting to turn, and it was below freezing outside. And Teresa and I went and ran the Air Fire Department 5K on Thanksgiving morning. So I got to see many of my friends from the running club. And one of our members, Anthony, was actually the original race director who created this race, what, maybe six years ago? I used to go up and run the Feaster 5, Feaster 5 Miler in Andover, Massachusetts, but uh, this is so much more convenient. The Feaster gets almost 10,000 runners and a bunch of local running celebrities. They show up and they take pictures with Dave McGilvery. I mean, it's a good race, but air is way less hassle for me being in the next town over. I can't say I had a great race. I can't say I had a bad race either. In terms of how I felt and the pace I ran, it wasn't my best effort, given how I actually tried to train for the race and am coming off a successful marathon campaigning season. But on the other hand, being out on a cold, sunny morning, with my daughter and all my friends. There's really no complaining about that. Today, we speak with friend of the show Alex about his epic adventure at the Ultra Trail du Mont Blanc at the end of the summer. And if you pay attention to the ultra world, you may have heard of Leadville or Western States. Well, UTMB is the Western States of Europe, if you will. And it gets all the best international mountain and trail runners, and it's over 100 miles long, and it has an insane amount of vertical. Alex used to volunteer to edit the audio for the interviews on Run Run Live, another one of those simpatico friendships I've been graced with through the podcast. And I think you'll enjoy his story. So remember a couple episodes back when I gave you my new applesauce recipe? Well, I've been trying new excellent variations of applesauce recipes. So I've started putting overripe bananas and peaches in with the apples. I tried one that was all green apples, Granny Smith's. And uh, you don't even have to peel the apples, I discovered. You just throw it all into a oven-safe dish and cover it and 
bake it on low all day and you get amazing healthy applesauce for your morning oatmeal. So in section one of this episode, I will talk a little bit about how I attempted to pivot from the marathon to the 5K. And in section two, I'll write about running in the city, the city of Boston. So I finally got around to getting my flu shot. I try to get a flu shot each fall because I think it's important to do my part to keep the herd healthy. I usually don't get sick since I started training regularly. A number of people I know, work with, and even my wife, who's usually as healthy as a horse, came down with this nasty chest cold this fall. And that seemed to last for two to three weeks for these people. So I went down to the local drugstore where they give flu shots. And I went down on Saturday. And it wasn't a very productive day for me. The dump was closed because of Veterans Day. And I didn't know it until I loaded up my truck with trash and drove over there. I found it impossible to get in for a haircut two weekends in a row due to some bizarre spike in the demand for haircuts locally, but I did manage to get my flu shot. And while I was sitting there, an old man came in and joined me. And remember, it was Veterans Day, and he was wearing a World War II commemorative hat. So I asked him, and he told me that he enlisted in 1942 at the age of 17, And he was in Normandy six days after D-Day. And he was stationed in Czechoslovakia. And he went to the Pacific Theater after that and was in the Philippines and in Japan. And he'd be about the same age as my dad would be if he was still alive. A local guy, grew up in this town, lived his life here. Still here, getting his flu shot. Imagine the changes he's seen. So that was a few weeks before Thanksgiving. This intro was (laughs) written on Thanksgiving, and I find myself thankful. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Pivoting from the marathon to a 5K. The horror. The horror. Usually, I don't worry about 5Ks. I mean, I run one, maybe two 5Ks a year. The Thanksgiving morning race is one of my traditions. And it's never really about the race. It's about doing something with friends and family. But this year, I tried to outsmart myself and actually train for it. Now, 5Ks are awful. It's 20 minutes at max effort. It hurts all the way. The legs are screaming, the lungs are busting, and the heart is pounding the whole time. It's awful. And you might argue that the marathon is worse because you're out there for so much longer, but the marathon is just a slow burn that you get to ease into. The 5K is like hitting your thumb with a hammer. It just hurts. So how do you train for a 5K? Well, if the 5K was your target race and you had a full training cycle, you would train for it like any other distance race. You would do long runs to build up your endurance, and then shorter, race-specific workouts towards the end of your training cycle. For for a 5K, strength is also very important. You'd want to do some focused leg and core strength work as part of that cycle. The difference from marathon training is A... You don't need to go super long in your long runs. B, 
you need to focus more on core strength, and C, you need to do shorter, more intense speed work to get comfortable running in and past your threshold. What form does that shorter stuff take? Classic track type workouts, 200 meter repeats, 400 meter repeats, 800 meter repeats, even maybe some 1600s. Can't ever go wrong with a good set of fast 1600s. These shorter interval workouts would be done at close to max effort with short recovery to mimic the intensity of the 5K effort. That's how you do a training cycle for a 5K. But what if you're rolling off a successful marathon training cycle and have a couple weeks to get ready for a 5K? Then what do you do? Well, that's a good question. You've already got the base mileage and fitness. Your conditioning is excellent. The distance won't be a problem. The challenge is that you have just spent a few months training your legs to run slow. Not super slow, but 90 seconds a mile slower than your 5K race pace. You need to remember how to run fast. You need to get your foot speed and your strength back. And the first step is to recover from your marathon. You need to get at least a week, maybe two weeks of rest. Not laying on the couch type rest, shorter, easier, less volume, less intensity rest. You can't just jump into interval training after a marathon. You have to recover. And the older you are, the more you need to recover. You can start weaving in some core strength work, replace the hard running workouts with some core strength workouts in the gym. You can start doing some strength work with your legs. And once you're recovered, you can lay in the speed work and the more intense strength work. Short tempo runs where you warm up for a few miles and then run race pace hard effort for two, three miles. That's great for race simulation. So I went through this for my Thanksgiving 5K. I had rolled out of two marathons in October. I was not injured. I had a great base. I rocked that second marathon, qualifying for Boston. It was a good, smart training cycle with a good, smart race to cap it off. And I had four weeks to recover and train for the 5K. Usually, I would not even bother training for this 5K. I'll just show up and let it happen to the best of my ability. But this year I told my coach I wanted to do well, and I thought I could flip my fitness. This meant I would have a week to recover, then two, three weeks to train. Coach played along and loaded me up with speed work over the course of those weeks. But I overshot my ambition. My grasp was beyond my reach, as they say, or something like that. Coach had me scheduled with a big push the weekend before the Thanksgiving race. A good, strong workout on Friday, followed by a hard workout on Sunday with the race on Thursday. The Friday workout is what I would refer to as the once-a-runner workout. If you've never read John L. Parker's book, you can't call yourself a real runner. It most beautifully captures the compulsive passion that training can become. And for that culminating race, Quentin Cassidy does this workout, which is I think 30 or 50 hard 400s in a row. And that's what this Friday workout was like. But unfortunately, with my new job, I was unable to do this workout on the Friday. So I pushed it to the next day, the Saturday. 
and I did it on my local track and it was a monster and I got it done and I got I felt really good about it. Then I was supposed to do a seven mile run on Sunday with three miles of race pace tempo in it. And I did that workout, but my legs were cooked from the track workout the day before. I got it done, but it was hard. And I was running with my friend Tim and we ended up getting lost a little bit and doing eight miles instead of seven. But my expectation was that I would get a big bounce out of this big push and crush that 5K, just like Quentin Cassidy did. And that's not how it worked. <laughs> it didn't work out that way. Even though I tapered the next few days into my 5K, my legs were heavy for the race and I had no pop. I didn't do awfully, but it was not the race that I had trained for. It was a real struggle. And looking back on it with my coach, it looked like I overtrained. He said I overraced. Clearly, my body was not able to recover enough to get the benefit of that hard speed work. As fit as I was aerobically, I could not flip that fitness into speed in a couple of weeks. I mean, the theory is valid. If you want to switch to that shorter distance, you should be able to tweak your training. The learning for me is that you only have so much capacity for racing and hard work, regardless of what kind of work that is. And I thought that somehow this shorter speed work, because it was different from the aerobic training and racing I had been doing, wouldn't weigh in so heavily. I could not only recover, but also benefit from it. And the truth is, I probably would have performed better in that 5K if I had just rested and taken care of myself during those four weeks. Work is work. Your body, or at least my body, even when it is healthy and fit, can only sustain that race-level effort for so long. It's a cycle. You have to cycle up, race, then cycle down. I'd like to say I learned a lesson, but I'm sure it's a lesson. <laughs> my hubris will soon have me forget. <laughs> And now for today's featured interview. All right. So, Alex, you and I, we've been friends for a while now. And uh, I've watched your running career sort of start from scratch, from uh, doing nothing, and go up through the marathon and the ultra world. And you came over and ran Boston. And, but you did something super special, something epic this year. And the timing worked out pretty well for you because you were between jobs on a career move, so you had time to sort of focus on it. Uh, you ran the Ultra Trail Mont Blanc, which is not probably as tip of the tongue in the United States, <laughs> except in the ultra community. You know, the ultra community knows it. I would compare it to like the western states of mainland Europe. Yeah, I think that's the, the right way to describe it. People quite often talk about uh, UTMB, the acronym. So if people have heard UTMB, it's the same race, the Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc. And you're right, it's the largest ultramarathon in the world insofar as it attracts and accommodates 2,300 runners. But it's not as old or prestigious as Western states. And Western states will only, only handle 300 runners because of the I think it's the fire regulations, actually, in the, in the national park. It is the, the coming together. They now call it the World Summit of Trail Running because it's not just one race. There there are four races for both men and women that run over a, a period of the week. And as I come on to, that made life a little bit interesting out on the course in terms of dealing with some of the mud that had been left by previous races. 
but it was indeed an epic experience. This is on Mont Blanc, right, or near Mont Blanc, which is sort yeah. of the so central you, massif of, uh, of France, if I remember my geography. Yeah, it sits in the Alps. So the Alps are the mountain range that run from France past Switzerland, Italy, Germany, over the top of Italy and down further to the east. The Mont Blanc Massif is the largest set of mountains within that range. So as with any mountain ranges, you've got a series of the valleys and then you've got you know, a series of mountains. To circumnavigate the massif that includes Mont Blanc is yeah, just over 100 miles. So you don't run over Mont Blanc because that would be crazy. It's like 4,800 metres, you know, 15,000 feet. But you do run around it. And in running around it, those in this year's race, 104 miles, you still manage to accumulate a good deal of climb. So this year we managed just over 9,500 meters, which is about 31,000 feet of ascent. Okay. 31,000 feet of just up in just one up. in one race. Yeah. Yeah. That's and that's hard uh, to imagine. That's you like, don't that's want to, six yeah. Mount Washingtons. Yeah, and that was the way I described actually. There's a mountain in the UK called Mount Snowden, which is just shot 3,000 feet. So, so when you're trying to describe to people what you've done, you talk about, I ran a 100-miler. Oh, oh, that's amazing. How do you manage that? Yeah. And then I did it 10 times up and down Mount Snowden. <laughs> and people kind of glaze over, and it's, it sounds kind of crazy. But you know what? Until you experience it, I, I don't think, unless you are a mountain runner, you can really have an appreciation for just how hard that is. Yeah. yeah mountain running is different. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And it's not always the ups that are the most punishing because you're sort of in control on the ups but once your legs are gone and you're having to run those downs with no legs it's awful yeah well as, as we'll talk about chris i went through you know, a slow start a brilliant mid-race i then died slow and painful death just as you're saying i couldn't deal with the downs my legs were trashed and the rest of the race took me so long by the time i got to the last eight kilometers or so i'd recovered and I was able to sprint the finish in the end. It was that long a day, or two days, in fact. Yeah, brilliant. So what was the weather like at the start? And I think you guys got, like, it's one of those races where you experience every weather during the race. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So, um, actually, you're you one big fear. I mean, let's, let's keep in mind here that I first went out to the Alps in the summer about five years ago. And I did my first trail running out there. And I absolutely fell in love with it. And I then heard about this race and so began my interest in, in ultra running and the ambition to try and qualify for and get into this race at, at some point. And one of your biggest fears, having spent an awful lot of money and time to get out there, is that the weather, being mountains, it can change you know, pretty quickly and be quite dangerous, that the weather might shorten or cancel the race. And sure enough, the day I arrived out there, it was beautiful sunshine. It was 30 Celsius very 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 hot and lovely but the forecast was appalling and the night before the race we had a, a text message out to all runners saying that they were very concerned that the conditions would be too hazardous and they'd have to shorten the course as it turns out the shortening of the course only became about five kilometers it removed some of the very high points on the course didn't remove the climbs really and it only moved about 400 meters of climbing but it took you out of the areas where it would be very, very difficult for them to rescue you by helicopter if they needed to, yeah. where you'd be very exposed. But that still meant that the, the weather was poor. It was very, very wet and it was very, very windy and it, up high, it was very, very cold. So the extremes we, we had on one climb that was 800 meters, at the bottom of the climb, it was 15 Celsius. 
at the top of the climb, it was minus six Celsius with a wind chill of minus 10. And I had sleet being driven horizontally by a gale force wind into my hood. It was horrific. Yeah. The hardest conditions that I've ever been in, let alone run in. It was very, very difficult. I'm sure if you're a mountain running and you're used to uh, that kind of thing, then uh, you've probably seen worse. But for me, that was pretty bad. So how do you dress for that? What do you take with you? Yeah, well, I was really lucky, Chris, because um, the day before the race, like I said, the weather was turning and it was raining as I walked into town to register. And I put on my race coat you know, to protect me from the rain uh, and found out at that point that the, uh, the waterproofing had gone and it was letting in water. So I, I hurtled around and the good guys Innovate were very helpful in giving me a sales sample because they'd run out of jackets because everyone was buying up jackets because of the weather. And, and that was absolutely key. So having the right capability of jacket, breathable, but of course waterproof and windproof, having the right gloves, waterproof, fleece lines gloves, making sure that I had enough layers that I could put extra on, take it, stuff off. It meant you have to carry a lot of kit. My pack was just over three kilograms in terms of you know all the clothing and, and yeah. water that I was carrying around and I, and I wasn't carrying much food at all only what was mandatory but no yeah, good but quality kit is the, is the key it's not just about what, what you take it's the quality of it yeah so a good rain shell or a good sort of wind shell is uh is good because it's not necessarily for staying warm but keeping the elements off absolutely right if you're going anywhere near you know altitude and an altitude, I would say, anything over 2,000 meters, 6,000 feet, you need to be prepared. Uh, we hear too many stories of people that, are, you know, that go out for a hike or, or a run up into the mountains and, and just get caught out. And the weather can change very quickly, very badly. So good quality, thick, waterproof gear is a must. So what was your strategy going into this? What did you think was going to happen? So the, so the critical thing for me was to finish. Like I said, I've been looking forward to this race for so long. Uh, as far as I was concerned, it was... Uh, certainly going to be the pinnacle of my running career, perhaps ever, and certainly to date. I'm fully aware, having DNF'd a 100 miler earlier in the year, where I went off too fast in, in difficult conditions and was doing very well, but I had to drop out 70 miles. There was no way I was going to let that happen again. So I, I deliberately set off towards the back of the pack. Right, um, because you, you, if I remember correctly, you went after that other one, and you were, yeah, big you were, you were on PR pace through... 50 miles and you just uh, outran your fitness yeah yeah pretty much i almost broke my marathon trail record on the first 26 miles of that 100 miler and was in sixth place coming into to 50 miles absolutely nailing it and i felt fine the only issue i had as it turns out was um i was doing my kidneys some damage because i wasn't getting enough water through the amount i was sweating so you know that taught me that anything can happen out there if you don't meticulously look after yourself. So for this race, I was going to finish whatever happened. You've got a 46 hour cutoff, which sounds like ample time. Uh, and as things turned out, yeah, it was, it was enough, but it's not ample. 800 people out of the 2,300 that started did not finish that race for a variety of reasons. So I set out at the back of the pack. That was for me the best way of protecting myself from a fast start. And also I didn't want to be hanging around in the center of Chamonix for three or four hours before the start of the race, which you need to do if you're going to get a good position. I mean, don't get me wrong, the atmosphere there is electric. It's fantastic. But this race starts at 6.30 in the evening. Mm. So you've already been up a few hours, and then you're going to have to get through a whole night and a second night as well. So trying to not be tired was a kind of critical success factor as well. So I walked up with about 40 minutes to go from the start. 
uh, started at the back of the pack, uh, found a friend of mine that I did a qualifying race with last year, uh, and we ran the first kind of 10 miles together at a place that was you know way too slow for me to even feel comfortable, but I forced myself to do it. And I was back so, in... So it sounds yeah. like there was a lot of people on this course. Was this like single path, or was it mountain yeah. roads? I mean, it's it's the so, Alps, so is it like forested? Yeah, and if I'd done my if I'd done my homework, I would have realised that the first ten miles are quite wide track that you can run through in in, in forests, you know, but you can overtake quite a bit. And I'd have pushed on and uh, made up some some places. And I'll explain why why in a minute. But the rest of the course is real gnarly, majority single track trail. There are parts of it where it opens up quite nicely, especially um, through the midsection of the race. And there are some areas during the daytime where you can run off the side of the trail quite comfortably without cheating or without risk to hurting yourself or somebody around you. But in a lot of places, you have to be quite polite. Or as some of our European comrades are, they, uh, they'll just push past you on the trail <laughs> and it's dog eat dog. But it makes it really hard, especially at night, really hard to overtake people. Yeah, especially with those tough climbs, because you can't really pass real well on those tough climbs. So it ends up being a, a long conga line where everybody has to go as slow as the person in the front. And that's exactly what happened. So there I was in around 2000th place at the start of the first big climb. And I couldn't move past anybody. I was very capable of it. But there were just too many people and poles in the way. Don't forget that 95% of people are, are using hiking poles as well oh. to help them up these climbs. And, I mean, geez, you, you meet some idiots. You meet some lovely people. You meet some heroes. But you do meet some idiots as well who are trying to charge past you, particularly on the downhills, with their poles going everywhere. And I saw a couple of people go over the edge of the trail just because their own lunacy, frankly. <laughs> and then, of course, you stop and you ask them if they're all right. And they've typically only fallen about 10 foot or so. And, and they pick themselves up and look a little bit embarrassed. But, yeah, it was interesting because also in that first part of the race, everyone's very, very focused. There wasn't the usual good humor and chat that you get at the start of a big ultra marathon. Mm. I mean, the only people that I, I found would, would talk to me were... Uh, native English speakers, interestingly, you know, Americans and, and Canadians, as well as the Brits. But nobody else was really interested in talking. Yeah. In contrast, the second half of the race, when everyone's dying on their backside, people would love to talk to you. <laughs> and you can, have, you know, and you have those really good moments of comradeship and, and people helping each other out, you know. Yeah. But uh, I struggled with that first section and I did find myself thinking, what have, what have I let myself in for here? Am I just going to have a day and a half, two days of sitting in a line and fortunately when i got through the, the second aid station things started thinning out a bit the trail widened a bit and there's a great climb from about 20 kilometers to 20 so it's 45 kilometers and so it's a 25k climb you know what is that about 16 miles yeah 1700 meters of ascent so five and a half thousand foot yeah um, so that's a, not a, that's a, a large mountain Oh, it's that's not the tallest part of the course. Actually, it's a couple of hundred meters short, but it's um, you drop down to quite a low level before you start that climb. So it's certainly the longest climb on the course, if not the steepest. That took four hours. Yeah, so you're climbing tends, for four hours. To, that tends to sort people out too. You get a nice hard bit right about deep and up into the race where all the pretenders are going to fall off. Yeah. So and, did you and, pass a lot of people sitting by the side of the trail there? So I passed five. 500 people on that first long climb yeah yeah 500 places i made up on the second long climb which was to the joint highest altitude i passed 200 people on the third 
climb a hundred people. So the first actual climb of the race where I, I made up maybe you know, 20 places, 30 places because of the single line. I then made up for in spades through the midsection of the race. Yeah, and I got some, to. Some, sometimes you'd say that well, going out slow can't hurt in that long of a race, but sometimes <laughs> it's too slow, and it actually you burn a lot of energy weirdly because you're going too slow, because you get well, like, all frustrated and stuff. So I think what actually what happened with me was, uh, and you're right, that can happen. But what happened with me was because I met my family at the bottom or quite near the bottom of that really long climb. And my, my son was great. I arrived and, and he looked at me and he said, Dad, you must be so disappointed. I'm like, what? He said, well, you're two hours behind what you, what you said you'd be at this point in the race. <laughs> and I looked at him and I, you know, I'm, I'm too experienced. I just said, I wanted to be here earlier, but I'm not disappointed, Will. I've saved all that energy and it'll be good. But the downside was for that next midsection of the race, I probably went too hard to right. try and make up for what, right. I, what I'd lost. And right. there's the, arguably one of the hardest climbs is just over halfway. I got to, to the halfway point in 15 hours, okay? Right. And just after that halfway point, it was one of the hardest climbs. And I look back on Strava, and this was one where I'd made up 160 places on this particular <clears> climb. <throat> and I'm in the top 150 of times up that climb of all time, not just in yeah. the race. <laughs> you know, I, I absolutely nailed that climb. Yeah, that, um, that, you may have spent too much energy there. Right? I think I did, because... <laughs> That was 50 miles. By the time 60 miles came round, we're getting to the top of the Grand Colferay, which is the one where I explained at the bottom. It was 15 degrees Celsius. At the top, it was minus six. It was a brutal climb. It was the first climb where I actually felt, felt the effect of the altitude as well and felt a bit sick. But when we crested over the top there, there's a beautiful run down into La Fouli and, and the next town beyond, which is extremely runnable and should be very quick and you should be knocking out an hour for, for, for 10k, which at that stage of a race would, would be excellent. If, of course, your legs aren't trashed. So I went over the top of that hill, went to run and couldn't. I just yeah. absolutely couldn't. It was, we know what it's like, it's daggers, daggers into the quads every single step. Plus my knee was hurting, plus my feet were hurting. It was miserable. I still had the sleep coming into my hood. Uh, it was, you couldn't look up. Yet there were people passing me. And you know, when I look back on the, on the positions, I didn't lose too many positions at, at that point. I lost about 40, but it felt bad. It was the only time in the whole race, actually, where I got to that point where I just sat down on the side of the trail. I didn't ever think I wasn't going to finish, but I rang my wife and just said, you know those timings I gave you? Because you know, I'd caught back up. I was back on pace because I was, I was hoping for around a 30-hour finish. But I said to her, I said, just ignore everything you're seeing. My body's gone. I'm going to finish, but I'm going to be late. <laughs> and um, she was great. She just said, take your time. I'll be there at the aid stations that we've agreed to meet at. If I need to take the kids home you know, to bed and back to the chalet, I'll do that, and I'll come back out and meet you, which took some of the, you know, a lot of the pressure off. So at that point, I had no pressure on myself. I wasn't going for the time anymore. And not that I ever was, really. Like I said, I was going for the finish. And the family, I knew, wouldn't be hanging out waiting somewhere for me, uh, worrying about me. So, um, so how's the footing for when you get that precipitation? Did it get sloppy? Oh, Chris, Chris. It, you know what? You go through every type of terrain because you're basically running through the tree line and out the top of it. Yeah. Um, so down in the valley, you've got typical valley conditions. And it's relatively flat 
even on the uphill bits at the early parts of the climb, but it's pretty muddy, but you can deal with the mud because it's pretty flat. When you get towards through the trees, the trees have protected the trail a bit and they're, they're not so muddy in the early part of the race. But in the second half of the race, because they'd had two other races go through there earlier in the week and because they'd had 600 runners in front of me going through in this race, it was a mud bath. Yeah. And it was treacherous. And stupid, stupid me, I'd left my good head torch. I had two good head torches and I was going to swap them over at the halfway mark and I'd left one of them, the one for the second half of the race, in my drop bag at Cormier at halfway. So I only had my emergency reserve head torch, which makes seeing the mud and the rocks really, really hard. And at times you are variously clambering over rocks and then dealing with mudslide and then clambering over more rocks and then dealing with more mud. So you jump up on a rock, you jump down the other side and slide and slip. And, you know, and you've got drop offs on these trails. It might only be 50 foot. It might be 200 foot. You just don't know in the dark. I've never been around there before. Yeah, um, plus yeah. after after having you're running for more than a day, you start to get that tunnel vision where you can only see like a foot. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was incredibly tough. So I talked about that long climb near the start. I think my average speed on that long climb was six kilometers an hour. And my average speed on the downhill sections of the second half of the race was down to four kilometers an hour. Yeah, so you're just picking your way. You just pick your way. Just picking your way, yeah. And and that and that becomes a bad mindset as well because it it starts to reinforce that oh that's the only way I can do this. And it was only when the sun came up at the start of the second day or the third day really, I suppose Sunday morning, I started to feel strong again and I started to feel that I was able to finish this race strongly and I could see where I was going and see what I was doing. Now by this point, and the beauty of the running community is that that girl that I'd run the, the, the first section with, she'd dropped to about an hour and a half, two hours behind me at the 60-mile mark. But by 75-mile mark, she'd caught me back up. And we formed a group. So it was me, her, a guy from Australia, a guy from France in the Essex team, and this other lad. And we just trudged up and down these mountains ourselves. And there was yeah. very little running going on until that, that second dawn. But then when that second dawn came up and the, the team, you know, we looked at the prediction. It said that we were going to get into Chamonix half past 12, so just, just past midday. Race cutoff was at 4 p.m. That was too close for me. I felt good. I said to Tim, I said, look, we can do much better than that. Let's really push on and crack on. And we did. And you know what? We, we got in just around 10 o'clock, which was amazing. Yeah. yeah. And uh, So, you know, the, your point is valid. Now, a long race like that, you can kill yourself and recover and keep going. Yeah. Because you get so much yeah. time. But but also, I think so much of that night time was mental. Yeah, oh yeah. And I, okay, we had each other, and we had that camaraderie, and we and we talked, mm-hmm. and, and we managed to laugh at times. But we also, I think, just got too comfortable with moving too slowly. Mm-hmm. It seemed like moving slowly was the appropriate thing, because things were quite difficult. The reality is, we could have pushed harder, I'm sure. The reality yeah. is, had I been more confident in the mud, and with my poles, and if I had a decent head torch... I would have tackled those downhills with a bit more gusto. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe that would have ruined my race. Who knows? That's the other great thing about ultra running. It's every single race is different, and you can never really prepare for anything on that basis. So do you think uh, – do they allow you to have pacers in this race? No. No pacers. No. So it's uh, do-it-yourself. Yeah, which is why we formed the group, to help each other. And there was one guy who was on the phone to his girlfriend, I think it's about 70, 70-odd 70 miles at the Trion Age station, and he was saying, I'm going to stop now, I'm going to stop now. 
And we were like, don't do that. Join us. Come with us. Come on. You'll be all right. Uh, and he did. And he made it. And it's great. So he needs pacers. You, you just got to hook up with, with other runners and sure. get yourselves through it together. Yeah, the madness um, of crowds. Yeah, really. That's pretty cool. So you ended up uh, finishing in 39 hours yeah. something like that yeah just over 39 hours and and like i said you know i had a i had enough at the end i ran the last uh, six to eight kilometers downhill i felt like i was sprinting at the end i probably wasn't i managed to out sprint my 14 year old son though i mean he reckons that he he let me let me win i'm maybe he did if he did that was gorgeous but but i felt so strong it was such an amazing mm-hmm. feeling coming in and yeah 39 hours 15 i was still in the top half of the finishers yeah. You know, 667th place, which is just extraordinary, just extraordinary. Bearing in mind that, that everyone out there is a good runner and has done at least 100 mile and 250 milers to, to qualify. It kind of reminded me of Boston in that respect. And there's no Muppets there. Everybody <laughs> there is a strong runner. And yeah, I was really, really proud of, of where I finished up. I'm proud just to, just to finish. What, and are the, what are the winners doing and who won? Why? Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I just want to at this point just say, we have to have the utmost respect for these supreme athletes that are at the top of, of our field. So Killian Journey was the was the race favourite probably in most people's yeah. books. That's so, his home so, course. Yeah. Yeah. So Killian did did amazingly well. I th- I think he finished in about nineteen hours Jeez. twenty minutes something like wow. that. Yeah. Wow. Just phenomenal. But he was beaten by a clear twenty odd minutes by Francois Dehaene. Okay. So this race has been won by Frenchman for the last six years on the bounce. It's never been won by an American. It's only been once been won by a Brit. Um, the, the French and the Spanish normally take it off. That's an exception in the women's race, by the way, where Rory Bozio's won it a number of times for, for the Americans. But yeah, Francois Dehaene runs a vineyard in, in France. Uh, um, so he's not even a, a full-time paid-up pro-athlete, but he obviously trains a lot. And he's as big as a house. So, like, he's over six foot tall. Big guy, so he's in the same weight category as me. He's managing to finish that in 19 hours, one minute. I just don't know how they do that. They, I just don't know. They, they must just know the course so well. Yeah. Where, where to run and where not to run. And, Absolutely. Yeah, just, that's amazing. It's just incredible. And, you know, hats off to them. I think the first 150 people were under 30 hours. So the spread between first position and, and 150 is about 11 hours that's massive yeah so well, it just goes to show also yeah. how few people on the planet are in that kind of a shape and have, have that kind of experience in on those types of courses and also shows that that any idea i had of finishing in 30 hours was ridiculous <laughs> i would think it's a course where uh strategy would be very important right where you'd have to know the course very well and what to do that would help a lot Without question, yeah. there are areas where I was running and I shouldn't have been. There are areas mm-hmm. where I was walking and I shouldn't have been. And the ability to be confident on the switchbacks and in the mud and over the rocks and where to scramble and where to not bother must make a huge difference. Yeah, and also, and just, and just knowing where you are, right? I'm sure yeah. you got the places where you're like, where the hell yeah. am I? What yeah. time is it? Yeah. yeah. So it's like, and I think there's also something about race mentality. As we said at the start, I didn't race this. I wasn't trying to beat everyone else out there. I was trying to finish and enjoy the experience. I mean, I really looked forward to. I think those 150 people at the top of the field, they're all racing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So they're not hanging yeah. around in the aid station with their family for 50 minutes in the middle of the night because, you know what? Let's just enjoy this moment together. Yeah, I'm knackered. I could do with a rest. I want some hot soup. And my son's giving me a massage. And that's all lovely. 
But part of it was also just they managed to be there in the middle of the night. I was there with them. Let's enjoy this moment for a while. I've just totted it up before this interview and I spent around three hours in aid stations. Hmm. You know, yeah. that's not racing. That's having a nice time. I'm glad I chose to have a nice time. Yeah. Well, you get through it anyhow. I mean. Indeed. Yeah. It sounds like it was epic. It sounds like something you'll never forget. I'll never forget it. I probably wouldn't do it again unless I chose to really go after mountain races. It's a very, very different type of uh, endurance. A lot of it isn't running, but I I would never regret doing it for a second. I loved it. It It's an amazing experience. And, you know, I'd heartily recommend that everybody that enjoys an endurance running does a mountain race at some point in their life. Um, Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And you can't just do one. (laughs) You you got to do a bunch of them to figure it out because it's a skill that you need to figure out. And that was my mistake, for sure. I practiced a lot for the uphills, but a lot of my uphill training was on treadmills set at 15%, doing that for an hour and a half or two hours. Uh, Just the nature of my my life, I can't get to the mountains. But of course, what I couldn't practice for was the downhills, and that was my undoing, really. I'm fairly certain I, you know, with a decent amount of specific training, I, I could have done, you know, a lot better, maybe even edge towards that, that top 150, but I'm never going to get that opportunity. Yeah, it sounds um, like it was the, the right event at the right place in your life, the right time. So good for you. It's seldom that a lot of those forces, you have that convergence of forces, right? And you have an event like that. And that's what makes them special. Absolutely. All right. So what's next? So after nine months of teaching myself to run a little bit more slowly and deal with hills, I've, I've now got an urge to go fast again. And I want to, I'm really keen to BQ again. I'm really keen to come back to Boston and run that beast in under three hours. Because um, <laughs> I feel like there's unfinished business there, Chris. Yeah, well, you know that. Yeah, I'm sure. That, that course has chewed up enough people. So I think I'm going to I'm gonna do the Barcelona Marathon in March, which is a nice quick one. I'm going to try and do that sub three. Yeah, Maybe unless, try and get a, try and get a PB. Unless, yeah, it's a fast course unless you get the heat, right? Yeah, yeah. It's early March. You, you, you're usually all right. But they're fingers crossed for the weather. You know me. I'm not very good in the heat. And I'm really looking forward to I did my first speed session down the track on, on Saturday afternoon. My next-door neighbor's a kind of national-level fell runner. So he really does know the mountains. But he's he's trying to pick himself up for some marathon running as well. So we're, we're hitting the track together, which is a tremendous help. So I'm going to try and get some speed back. Yeah, good. All right. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you. I'm going to move you towards the exit. We can get on with our days here. Thanks, and, Chris. Uh, look for good things to come from the future, Alex. It's Absolutely. Been a and talking to you. You're an I, inspiration. Thank you. It is a pleasure, and thanks for the opportunity to share the thoughts. Appreciate that, Chris. And, and if you get back to Boston, you know, I'll probably be there. Let's hope so. <laughs> At least for the next two years, right? Good man. Good man. All right. Cheers. See you there. Cheers, Chris. Bye. See you. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. One of the cool things about my new job working in downtown Boston is the running. We are fortunate to have a nice, big, well-appointed health club in my building, specifically for the people who work in the building. I can lift weights, I can do yoga, I can even use the treadmills and the bikes if the spirit moves me. What I mostly do is use the showers to clean up after my runs. The locker room is home to my apparel changing routines. When you work in the city, you have to carry your change of clothes with you, and like Superman, be adept at swapping outfits. Boston is an amazing place to run. Running is part of our fabric and part of our culture. 
and Boston is a very runner-friendly city. I'll roll out of bed and jump into my running stuff, and I'm usually up by 5 a.m., and I can be hitting the start button on my Garmin in the city before 7. I might have a bite or two of oatmeal and a first cup of coffee on the way in. I have my work clothes in my backpack with my snacks, maybe my lunch. And I'm not the only one on the train wearing running clothes in the early morning. There are lots of us on our way in to a gym or a run. The backpack I use is the one ASICS gave me for the 2014 New York City Marathon. This means at least three or maybe even four times a week someone will ask me, did you run this year's race? And I get to tell my story about being on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. True story, I was. And from my office building on Federal Street, I can zigzag through the alleys to downtown crossing. In the morning, the streets are pixelated with scuttling workers walking to work from some station or other. And walking does not satisfactorily describe what they are doing. There is a different walk, a city walk. It is a high-velocity striding. They make very good time. I'm often surprised by some diminutive office minion passing me with alacrity. And even though I have trained my own city walk in airports and cities around the world, heels click-clack on cobbles and echo from brick as they city walk with serious purpose. It's a bit of a competitive sport in itself. Now I'll pop out of a cross alley and run by a Catholic shrine building. I would avoid it if I could. The homeless sleep there. There are suspiciously noxious puddles on the century-old granite stoop, and I hold my breath. The 7-Eleven pipes Christmas music into the morning as I pop into the square of downtown crossing. The crowd thickens through the brick nexus of downtown crossing, I usually shift out into the road to avoid the pedestrians. Any cars there are are moving slowly and tentatively. They are the minority here. The pedestrians rule the squares and the cobbles. They drive here only with our tacit disapproval. From there, it's an easy block slightly uphill to the common by the State House on Park Street. On my way out, it's early, and the pedestrians are not yet legion. City workers are late starters. They scoot into work closer to 9 o'clock. Delivery vans are idling, and there are early morning work details. Steam wafts otherworldly up from the manhole covers. I enter the park in the top corner by the Park Street Station. In the morning, commuters spill up in clumps from the subway. I run diagonally across the park. I take different paths on different days. Sometimes I'll skirt the frog pond that is now an ice skating rink. Sometimes a more southerly route by the Christmas tree donated annually from St. John's, Nova Scotia. On one route, I run by an enthusiastic homeless man who cheers on the runners. I give him a smile and a high five as I run by. He makes my morning. In the summer months, there's a carousel crouching artistically at the path junction just past the frog pond with its painted horses. My mind floats in the morning, and the carousel horses remind me of a poem from Jim Morrison about the Sargasso Sea. When the still sea conspires in armor, 
and her sullen and aborted currents breed tiny monsters. True sailing is dead. Awkward instance. And the first animal is jettisoned, legs furiously pumping their stiff green gallop, and heads bob up, poise, delicate, pause, consent, in mute nostril agony, carefully refined and sealed over. Powerful thoughts find you in the quiet city park in the morning. Past monuments and dog walkers, I continue diagonally towards the river. On the western route, I may cut through the other half of the park and over the pond where in the summer the swan boats swim. There are also the ducklings walk and I make way. But usually I go the more direct route, down the lumpy and uneven red brick sidewalk by cheers, and I'm certain no one knows my name. There is a light at the crossing place, and sometimes I'm forced to wait. That is more likely on the way back. In the early hours, the pedestrian lights are a mere suggestion, or maybe a schoolyard dare, and we all scamper across the traffic. In Boston, the pedestrians mostly ignore the lights and are comfortable staring down the cars and playing matadors with the taxis and trucks. And there I am, eight or nine minutes into my run, and now I'm on the beige stucco pedestrian bridge that folds itself over Starrow Drive and dumps me onto the Charles River path. Facing the great basin of the River Charles, and we do love that dirty water, to my right is the Longfellow Bridge with the rattling red line train. Beyond that is the Museum of Science and the Zakem Bridge, bringing hordes of commuters down 93 into the heart of the Big Dig Tunnel. Beyond that, the harbor. In front of me is the hatch shell. To my left is the great length of the river path. About a kilometer upriver, the MIT bridge spans over into Cambridge. The jog over, weaving through the city, is a perfect warm-up. And once I get to the river, it is miles of unbroken path. And if I have a hard workout, this is where that work begins. It doesn't matter how much room I need. All that room is there and more. 1,600 intervals, no problem. 10-mile step-up run, got room for that too. And there are always runners there. The earlier I go, the better the runners are. There's a direct correlation between hardcoreness and early workouts. I see the Boston Marathon jackets. These are not the fun runners. These are the serious, the workers, the strivers. There is a steady stream of cyclists busy on their own commute into the city. The runners fast and slow, the bikers and the walkers weave in and out on the trail in a subtle and intricate dance of speed and effort and purpose. Out on the river, the crews from Harvard and MIT pace their shells. You can hear the distant and muted shouts of the coxswain in the low sun. In the morning, even in the summer, the sailboats aren't out yet and the duck boats full of tourists have yet to begin plying the basin. I can run all the way upriver, unbroken path for miles. When I get up into Cambridge, I start passing college students in sweatshirts. From my office, I can run different routes. I can follow the Freedom Trail markers up through Charleston to see Bunker Hill and Old Ironsides. 
In the course of a casual 10K loop, I can hit most of the historical landmarks in the city. I can scoot across Atlantic Ave and explore the Seaport District. I can go west of the park and have a look at the finish line at Copley. I can go more southerly down Tremont and circle back through Chinatown. It's a small city, geographically. It's not laid out in a grid like New York City or Chicago. Boston's more organically derived, like some medieval cities on the other side of the Atlantic. These are the exploratory routes, the casual runs. If I have a workout, I run on the Charles River. The surfaces are an odd combination of cobblestones and red brick and granite and cement and tar with occasional steel plates. In the city, especially during rush hours, it's a crazy kinetic game of Frogger. You have to keep your head up and your peripheral vision open to time the gaps. People walk at different speeds and come from all directions. Most of them are looking at their phones. They weave about drunkenly and and sometimes stop abruptly. Your advantage as a runner is your agility and your relative speed. I find myself hopping sideways and surging to avoid collisions. It's like that old computer game, Asteroids. It's a younger crowd, the city crowd, and that makes me happy. There are a fair number of smokers in the crowd, which makes me unhappy and a bit confused as to how that $5 pack of smokes makes it on a person's priority list in this expensive city. I like running in the city, and I like the feel of it. Me and my running stuff pushing hard through the din and melee. I feel like I'm on display. The truth is, I'm an outsider here. An old ghost sidling through their midst. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Excellent job, my friends. You have slipped, crawled, and struggled through 30 hours of the Run, Run, Live podcast, episode 377, 4-377. The intro for this podcast was written just around Thanksgiving. Now it is two weeks later, and I do apologize for the tardy publishing cadence. My new gig in the city is very intense and time-consuming. I don't have any place to record. And by the time I get to the weekend, I have a full slate of other activities to catch up on and no time to record either. I'm also fairly wrung out intellectually when the weekend rolls around. But that's not your problem. It's not a problem for me either. I'll figure it out. I have spent these few weeks well and wisely. I ran my turkey trot and it was a struggle, but I did okay. And I got to spend some time with my friends. It's a nice event to kick off. Thanksgiving Day. And last weekend I ran the 4.7 mile leg, leg two of the Mill Cities Relay. And I ran, I managed to run 730s as I predicted, but it was hard work. And I was pretty sore on Monday of this week. And basically I'm feeling the effects of an active fall racing season. Coach wants me to start training for Boston, but I kind of want to take some time off, do something different. I was looking at the Comrades Marathon in June, but that's probably outside my reach, as epic as it is. I'll figure something out. I'm so busy I find I'm falling into the switching trap. And this is what happens when you work on many important things in parallel. Every time you go from focusing on one important thing to focusing on the next important thing, you pay a penalty. 
It takes your brain a certain period of time to transition out of the one thing and refocus on the next thing. It's like when you're working on a project and you're deeply focused and the phone rings. It's important so you answer. And now you've lost the flow of that original project. And what ends up happening eventually as you try to string more projects in parallel is the time spent switching and absorbing the impact of the switch begins to outweigh the value of the thing you switch to. And they discovered this concept originally with the early computers, where eventually the entire CPU is tied up switching and nothing gets done. So what do you do? Well, unfortunately, the answer might be to work longer and maybe try to carve out appropriately large and specific chunks of time for important tasks. You may find that the only time you can find to actually do these things is outside of work hours. Or you can say no. You can identify those things that are not urgent but are important and make sure those things get done because those are the things that will pay off over the long run. For example, let's say you're having to deal with customers because you don't have enough qualified employees. So what should you do? If you don't deal with the customers, you'll take a high-profile hit for being unresponsive. But if you don't focus on hiring and training, you'll never get out of the trap. You'll be tempted to try to do both. Deal with customers and hire and train in your spare time on the side. And what happens? You end up being mediocre at both. So as painful as it is, you have to focus on the thing or things that will give you the long-term win, not the thing standing in front of you screaming. And it comes down to knowing what you're trying to accomplish and aligning your trade-offs with those strategic goals. I know it sounds strangely intellectual when I talk about it this way. In reality, it's just the chaos of daily life. And I'm going to keep plugging along, doing the right thing. And I will see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. All right, dog. All right, dog, we're going to record now. Just keep playing there. We'll see if we can find a quiet spot to do a little recording. Whew. Went down to Starbucks. Did a little writing after my run this morning. After being up at 5.20 to snow blow. <coughs> Got an early start. All right. And I used to... See, kids are screaming now. Hey, I'm recording! Why are you chasing me around? <laughs>